You're listening to Sports Radio Detroit. Get the scoop on Tigers today. Listening to Tigers SRD on SportsRadioDetroit.com. Welcome to Tigers SRD on the Overtime Media Network, powered by SportsRadioDetroit.com. I'm Roger Stillman, I'm Chris Brown, and tonight we'll, we'll be having Perry from Perry Lowe's Film at Perry Lowe's Film on Twitter. Old uh, old friend of the show, former Bad Hop host, who has his own podcast. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the Oscars. Whether or not you guys watch the Grammys, we'll talk a little bit about that. Plenty to get to with the Oscars, including the whole controversy about whether having a host or not, which is, I think it's a little absurd, but uh, plenty to get to. But the most important thing today, Chris, outside of Christian Hackerberg's AAFL appearance over the weekend, <laughs> is right. is two things have occurred today. One... Spring training has started. Pitchers and catchers are reported. Huzzah. Two, something for the first time since 1979 occurred today. Tonight, Chris, what was that? Oh, John Beeline getting ejected? Yeah, for the first time in 40 <laughs> years. 40 years. 40 years, Chris. Amazing. Yeah, no, he, I mean, if anybody, this is a Michigan basketball coach. If anybody follows that, he's a very mild-mannered gentleman. And uh, I haven't been watching the game, but I turned it on, and Michigan was down 40-27 to to Penn State, who was winless in the Big Ten. Uh, down by 13 at halftime, and Beeline was getting injected. So something has gone sideways in this game, and, and who knows? I, I suppose we'll find out what it is later. But, uh, yeah, yeah, the uh, the pitchers and catchers was nice. It's always uh, nice to – it's another one of those little steps along the way of like, oh, man, baseball's coming back. It's going to get warm soon as we get another snowstorm. Yeah, another uh, ice uh, whatever – it's with school being canceled again for some people out yeah. there, but uh, I didn't think it was that bad, honestly. So I, I you know, yeah, you know, I was I I never went out today. It was uh, it looked like we had well, I, I I that's not true. I went out and snowplowed the driveway with our snowblower, but uh, it didn't seem too bad. But I guess when you have freezing rain or whatever, they they don't want to take any chances. Yeah, and I was out today because I wanted to go see. I went to see my dad for a little bit, and uh, but after you got on the main roads, it was fine. Everything seemed salted and what have you. I I uh, did de-ice the driveway a little bit, and it was just all like just literally taking a shovel and just picking it off. So it wasn't it wasn't that bad. But uh, mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. So spring is upon us, and the Tigers are starting up camp. You know the the stories of Victor Reyes gaining 15 pounds today. Where we had you and I and a little Twitter, we've had a little crack up about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's one of those. I, I don't know who it is that keeps track of it, but there's always somebody who keeps track of uh, players showing up in the best shape of their lives. And we've already gotten, I, I think, two. We've got Reyes, who added 15 pounds of muscle, and Daniel Norris is supposed to you know, have a fully functioning core for the first time ever or something like that. Like, uh, you know, there's always optimism at the beginning of spring training, and that's good. I think I also commented, I, I thought I saw that, that Byron Buxton supposedly gained like 29 pounds of muscle, which just seems like complete horseshit. <laughs> like, like I can eat pizza every day for like three months and, and maybe gain 
30 pounds. I mean, maybe I'm uh, underestimating my abilities to gain weight, but um, 30 pounds of muscle in, in like one off season is insane. Yeah, that seems like I mean, it's a, like to have that kind of gains. There has to be a little oh, help. Okay, so I, I'm seeing 20, 21 pounds in the off season, and they don't say muscle, so it's not necessarily maybe he was just drinking. Oh, I you know what? I can honestly see 21 pounds. I mean, I could see that easily if you're if you just stop working out, stop doing your routine. But I mean, and at the same time, I'm guaranteeing he's doing his routine, but he's just eating maybe extra five thousand calories, right? You think? Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like, like if 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 we just don't exercise and move and eat a bunch of terrible food, we could gain twenty pounds. But that's not helpful to an athlete. So you have to assume this is like twenty pounds of good weight. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe maybe it's possible. He's still fairly young, but uh, yeah. And then I saw I think Carson Fulmer has dropped fifteen pounds. So it's just you know all these stories about people changing their bodies heading into spring training, and we'll see. And then uh, yeah, the Fulmer had a knee brace on there, and uh, but he seemed to be fully participating. I saw there was a video of him fielding bunts. Um, so yeah, I mean that's good and bad, I suppose. Like. They're talking about re rejiggering his mechanics so he doesn't put so much weight on his knees and stuff like that, and that, that is concerning to me. I mean, I, the whole thing's kind of concerning. He's you know, he's constantly getting these injuries, and they're going to try to change him up so he doesn't get that, and that always worries me. Like when you change somebody's uh, delivery or their wind up or anything like that, you know, this is something that they've been honing for the last. 15 years so the body might not be able to take a, a new thing very well yeah i but, mean uh, especially yeah, especially if you're just eating nothing but crap you know it's like that would be something that would cause your body to have, have that you know breakdown like that so but uh and then uh yeah there was a there's a uh brandon day our friend uh sent uh put a little uh, uh link to a uh, cool story from Ed, Evan Woodbury of M Live about uh, Casey Mize, and in, in, in it, Casey Mize talked about how he's into like analytics and stuff like that, and how he scrapped a slider for a slurve, and it was just kind of very encouraging to see um, that to me. Just uh, n- not that like going crazy into that is is always gonna do wonders for everybody, but it sort of gives you an insight into the level of dedication that a player has, where he wants to get better, and he's searching out ways to do it. And he was talking about spin access and spin rate and all that good uh, driveline stuff. So, yeah, that was that was another encouraging thing from Casey Mize. So, yeah, some some good early stuff out of spring training. Yeah, especially because I mean, we we look at the Tigers right now with Casey Mize. I mean, there might be a chance he might make the rotation. I mean, I, I know that that doesn't they're they're inviting the camp, but there must be a reason for it. You know, I mean, I don't think they will put him on the roster. You never know. Just depending on how circumstances are, but uh, it is encouraging, but it's way too early. As I said, it's it's February 12th, and trying to be, you know, we, I, I tend to think that our show tends to be on realistic terms and, and not go so high with that stuff. Like, for example, like uh, Derek Jeter telling everybody that the he's working on the Marlins to be in contending, so it's kind of like, what, what what's going on? I mean, I, what, was, what was that comment? Was it just like a throwaway comment? So. Yeah, I think that's... That's the classic uh, yeah, bullshit. Like, hey, we want to win, and uh, and then they go out and you know sign Curtis Granderson to a minor league deal. <laughs> like, that's like their big move of the offseason. I can't think of what else the 
the Barlins have done. I, I guess, you know, they traded Real Muto for Sixto Sanchez and uh, Alfaro and, and one other player. But, yeah, I think just, you know, all GMs, all managers, nobody ever goes out and says, yeah, you know, uh, nobody but Alavila apparently goes out and says, yeah, you know, we're going to suck probably for three more years. <laughs> Not even like even the race. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, even like I think like it's like it's just it's strange too because we saw some of the, we saw the, the the comments and that a lot of these people a lot of the players usually managers and assistant general managers don't say anything. We saw the David Littlefield stuff that mm-hmm. uh, Emily Walden was talking about, and uh, he didn't really say much. No, that was uh, yeah. Emily had a I thought she did a good job of asking all like you know a bunch of good questions and you know specific questions about players and about injured players and about changes to the system. And he just really was not giving her anything. There was a lot of sort of, basically he just said the players will decide that with how they play. And it's like, well, all right, I guess. But, uh, I don't know. It's tough to get uh, people to talk except for Avila. For some reason you, uh, ask him anything and he'll, He's like uh, Jim Carrey and Liar Liar or whatever, which I've never actually seen. But as I understand it, uh, something happens and then he can no longer tell lies, even at his own detriment, to great, hilarious results. Yes, yes. And uh, a man seen the movie, yes, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it's quite it's early on in his career. It's, it's actually, you know, before he gets kind of like this artistic, you know, I take myself way too seriously. He's still in his uh, slapstick era of Jim Carrey. Because I think there's, look up to Jim Car- Carrey, you know, we could talk about this in three different ways, Chris. I think there's three different eras of Jim Carrey. There's the, I'm doing the stand-up comedian thing in Living Color. There's the mm-hmm. Ace Ventura, I'm taking any role because I'm, you know, I'm funny, blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to be a comedian. I'm trying to, I, I'm, I'm this the, the king of all king, comedy. I'm I'm doing all these impressions and and it's carrying over this. And then, I, I'm sorry, four stages. The third stage is, hey, I'm more than a comedic actor. Damn it, I'm serious. Okay, look at me in a Truman Show. Look at me in that movie where he's Man on the Moon. Man on the Moon, or what's that one where he's uh, Eternal Sunshine. Yeah, he had a, a couple pretty good non. What, is this the majestic? What's the majestic where he plays a guy who has amnesia or like he comes back to his town? Oh. They think that he's uh, dead or something. Boy, I don't remember that one. Yeah, there's. Yeah, I can't remember. That. I think it's called majestic. I, I, I saw. Don't... I did see. There was a movie. What was it called? The number twenty three. Yeah, was just the yeah. biggest piece of shit. Oh yeah, and he had it on his website too. Like he has his website where he has like all these titles and representations of like this. I think it was an image he did. And, by the way, Virginia mm. Madison. God bless her for being in that movie because I don't see enough of her. She's a great actress, but like that movie was a Candyman. <laughs> Candyman, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Ellen. She was also in uh Annie. <laughs> she also had uh she was in Side Sideways, which is one of my favorite uh, yeah, Paul Giamatti yeah. movies. And uh but anyways, yeah, so I think Jim Carrey's that's one of his better movies, but Lila is pretty good. But uh <laughs> But anyway, the, anyway, what was I saying? Oh yeah, Avila. Can't yeah. stop. Can't stop talking on the truth. Can't stop, won't stop. Yeah, can't stop, won't stop. And like I said, if you if you go up to him in the press box and you're polite to him, he'll make a few minutes to talk to you. You know, it's mm-hmm. you forget that he, you know, if you just treat him like a human being, I'm, I'm sure. But I, chance I had a chance to talk to him. I just like I said, from one Cuban or other, I just you know shook. You know, like I said, told him that I started with my dad, and that was it. So, but yeah. uh, that was yeah. So, 
I don't know if did you have an inside the numbers? I, I came across something later uh, today that I thought was interesting. Yes, I do. Um, but you can go ahead and go with your first because the good, bad, and ugly. I think we're going to postpone because of that. I like that. Like we're going to talk to Perry about. Uh, there's a really good question that will pose to Perry, but I do have an inside number. I mean, unless you have a good, bad, and ugly, because I can. I, I think I. No, I, I just have the one that I had last year. This wasn't. I don't think it was great anyway. So I'm good with or last week. Did I say last year? Yeah, you did say last year, but it's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I don't, I don't have any problem. But but I saw Mike Petriello, who does you know the Statcast uh, stuff for MLB, was talking about the Mets, and he was pointing out how it's great to have good players on your roster, but it's also bad to have a bunch of bad players on your roster. And he pointed out that the Mets had the second most uh, negative WAR hitters of any team last year at. Uh, I think they had 11, but my, so my number was 10 and 7 because 10 was the number of negative war hitters the Tigers had, and 7 was the number of negative war pitchers. Um, and then, to their credit, I suppose, the Tigers have gotten rid of five of those negative war hitters uh, in the form of Victor Martinez, James McCann, Jim Adusi, uh Dixon Machado, and Mike Gerber. But don't worry, because they've added four more negative war players in the offseason. Um the, uh, no, no, these guys aren't necessarily going to make the team, but I wouldn't be shocked if we see any or all of them. Bobby Wilson was a negative .5 war last year, you know, the catcher. Caleb Cowart, the, the potential two-way player that they brought in, negative .3. Gordon Beckham, negative .2. And then there's Hector Sanchez, who was negative .2 two years ago. Wow. Because last year he wasn't even on a team in the majors. So, uh, so yeah. But what, what, what was interesting is the, the I, my other number was seven. That was the number of negative war pitchers they had on the team last year, which was actually the lowest number in the AL Central. Wow. Every other team in the Central had more bad pitchers. The uh, The Twins had 15 somehow, which is insane to me. The, the White Sox had 12, the Royals had 10, and the Indians had 9. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the, the Tigers didn't have good pitching last year. They didn't have awful pitching, I guess. It was just really mediocre. Yeah. So that was my, that, my interesting numbers for the day. Mine actually was it was an article that I saw earlier today. Uh, and, I, and I was looking for one around. I was look, kind of I was looking around a couple of sites. But Fangrass provided a velocity surge. And to talk about the velocity surge in, in, in pitches thrown has plateaued. And this one comes from Jeff Sullivan. And the number is... 0.18, which is the that's how much the rookie velocity is up. So no. essentially, we've talked about rookies throwing gas, but the league average for rookies fastballs thrown is 93.5. That was for last year. Um, it's peaked up since 2008. So from 2008, excuse me, 2013, rookie fastball velocity increased by two full ticks. So it went from 91 to 93, but since then it hasn't kind of really gone up that much. But uh, in terms of pitches thrown over 100 miles an hour last year, the number of pitches, it was about look, about 1,700 in 2016. Last year, it hovered around 1,300. So it's getting it, – it's almost like you, you talk about this, Chris. Like movement is everything. But to have that fastball, you, yeah, so what? If you could throw it 95 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, but if you don't have any movement with it, it doesn't really matter. But uh, – but, yeah, for 2015 to 2018, there's an increase of just 1.5 percentage points. Um, from 2012 to 2015, there's an increase of 4.8 percentage points. 
So um, that's your average fastball being thrown. So that, I found that I found it fascinating because if everybody's throwing that way, then you know that's why I kind of like the it, it mentions too a little bit about strikeout rates and um, like last year, like the league average strikeout twenty years ago or twenty one years ago was sixteen point nine, uh, a decade later seventeen point five, and then now it's twenty two point three. So that's twenty seven percent increase in strikeouts over the course of ten years. So, either way, I thought that was my that was my inside the number for you. Yeah, you know, I read that article too, and I, w- I thought it was pretty interesting because because uh, we sort of think of these pitchers just continually throwing stronger and throwing stronger, throwing harder, and and getting stronger. But there does seem to be some uh, a leveling out here. Uh, although the strikeouts continue to rise, so I think I think there's just a, there's there's the velocity, and now pitchers are getting smarter about how they mix their pitches and they're refining their breaking balls and things like that to make it uh, all that much harder to, to hit the ball. But uh, yeah, that was, that was interesting to me. I, I guess I hadn't really considered, I don't know if I thought that people were going to start throwing much harder. It seems to me that like 105 is just about as fast as anybody could ever possibly throw like from a mound. Yeah. Like I know, uh, I think some outfielders can, you know, when, when they do that, uh, I don't know what they call them, pull downs or whatever they are, where the uh, guy gets a running start and throws it as hard as they can. I think they get up to like 110. But yeah, I mean, there's just the human body. I'm sure there's like, you know, a handful of people out there who have some sort of weird, you know, musculature and ligaments that turn them into the elongated man or something like that. And they can, you know, they could theoretically throw harder, but most people don't have the physical capabilities to do that. So. Uh, the one thing though is I, like I don't know if it will matter that much. Like I don't think batters are going to slowly get better because the velocity plateaus. Because I mean we know major league hitters will still will will hit 110 miles an hour if they know it's coming and it's not moving, you know, side to side or up and down. So, um, but yeah, that was interesting, and it's a good uh, inside the numbers. Um, I, you know what it was an interesting one too. Like one of the comments, and I and I was it actually, I always like reading the comments sometimes in these sec- in fan graphs only because everywhere else comment sections are nightmares sometimes. But the the one of the questions was proposed, and it was um, I I'm really curious to see this analysis on secondary pitches. Um, and that's true because you know we have talked about this before, Chris, about slider velocities. Seemingly, like there's the slider seems like to be the new in vogue pitch because growing up. I don't know about you, but for me, it was always people were talking about the split finger fastball based off uh, David Cohn being one a component of it. A lot of, like Jack Morris through the in, throughout the eighties and early nineties, and then it kind of went away again. And then it was back to uh, you know fastballs blown away, and then kind of like that hard slider because sliders like Jose, for example, Jose Rio, the ace for ninety Reds World Series team, had a really good back door slider, but because they kind of wait, wait for sliders early in the 90s because it caused so many elbow and shoulder problems. But, I mean, do you remember that being a secondary pitch when you were growing up, or was it always kind of like the curveball? Or... You know, I just I remember curveball, you know, being being the thing. I, that's one of those things where I don't necessarily remember when I started learning about other pitches. Or if it was just something, like, like I don't know. As a kid, the curveball was just so obvious, how, how loopy it was. And the fastball was straight, but like I don't, I don't know when I started learning about the splitter and or changeups or sliders. 
it must have been, you know, it must have just appeared in there somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, I I, uh, I remember talking about like Roger Clemens throwing the splitter and stuff. Oh yeah, he was a big proponent of that. That's, no, that's true. And even like the, but like I said, it just seemed like there was like a trend with that. that it tended to went away. But slider, like in terms of sl- slider velocity, I mean, it's just to have that. Dip, like for example, or the the what was it the Bugs Bunny change of the Fernando Rodney throws too. Like just, I love to see kind of like how that like the secondary pitches velocity had would increase in the last, I'd say, twenty years. I would see. I'd like to see that kind of data. Yeah, for sure. I would like to see all the data. Yeah. So, but, but uh, uh, go ahead, sir. Chris, what were you gonna say? Oh, nothing. I just uh, I sent you a message on Twitter okay. about uh, about Perry. Perry's texted me, and I couldn't. Uh, I would probably want to cut this part out, but ah, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. No, it's about a... how to contact him. Oh, it's okay. Um, no, you know what we'll do? We'll we'll take a quick break. And we'll back. We'll bring Perry in to the conversation. We're going to talk Oscars. We're going to talk some rule. We're going to we're continue our baseball conversation. We're going to talk yeah. the proposed rule changes. That there's some. I don't know. I, I think some of them are a good idea. Chris and I. Chris and I may agree. Perry might feel differently. We'll see. You're listening to Tigers SRD on the Overtime Media Network, powered by Sports Radio Detroit. We'll be back in just a second. Three, two, one. All right, welcome back to Tigers SRD here on SportsRadioShirt.com. Happy to have in with us tonight uh, old friend of the show, former Bad Hop co-host of Chris. Now he has his own podcast, which you can find on Facebook. You can like the page we are watching here. You can find it on a rival network. Well, I guess it's a rival. I don't think it's a rival network, but like as my co-owner Ben said it is, but I don't think so, whatever. Anyway, long story short, find them at uh, Michigan Sports Entertainment. You can find the podcast there. Anywhere you love, uh, so you go iTunes, Spotify, you name it. You guys are on Spotify, right, Perry? We are. As far as I know, as far as I know, we're everywhere. My okay. my podcasting partner is uh, much more savvy about all this stuff than I am, and assures me that we are everywhere. Okay, so you, yeah, you can find Perry, of course, you can find him on Twitter at Perry Lowe's Film. Uh, Perry joins us to talk Oscars, talk Grammys, talk a little bit about uh, the baseball rule changes. We'll get to in a second, but first, Perry, how you doing? Hi everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's plenty. Yeah, plenty to get to. Uh, we'll get to the Grammys because before we went back on, we had a really good, interesting five minute conversation involved uh, cocaine, uh, blonde hair, <laughs> and uh, Grand Van Fleet. So we'll we visit some of that parts of that conversation. But uh, so let's talk about the the rule changes, Chris. Lee. We um, the, it was announced last week, and we didn't really get a chance to talk about it because. It was one of those things that I think was announced the day of we're recording, so we didn't really get a chance to go over it. Plus, with Brandon on, we we usually cover a lot of ground with Brandon anyway, so it would have probably been like a three-hour conversation with this. But uh, um, but there was a great line I saw in the ringer, and the in the the first paragraph was, was something that was said that I really liked. This was baseball is a sport in crisis. The drive for profit has swallowed transformed and expelled the drive for honor victory like yesterday's yogurt parfait. Attendance <laughs> is down. A work stoppage after the 2021 season looks incredibly avoidable. After three more years of non-competitive behavior like the majority of, base- of 30 baseball MLB teams, a work stoppage will probably feel like an act of mercy when it comes. So um, I like that. Uh, and Jeff Passon reported this on ESPN. It's weird for me to say he's on ESPN now. Um, there's some tweaks. They're talking about the universal DH, which wouldn't happen until 2022. But uh, 
the rules will go as follows. So uh, we'll go over the rules one by one, and then we'll kind of give her a commentary about that. So um, adding a 26 roster spot. So that would mean that 30 new full-time jobs for players would be added, some adding some flexibility for managers, including pitching rosters, and you know something along the lines of like a, a specialized hitter. And under league proposal, a roster expansion would also come with a 12-pitcher limit for non-September games and a reduction of September rosters from 40 to 28. So uh, I'll start with you, Chris, on this. Uh, what do you think about this proposed rule change? Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. I think Leland used to always complain about the 40-man rosters and, uh, you know, didn't want people coming up and, and just, uh, you know, he said expand them to 40 but only let us have 25 guys available per game. He said it just like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I like the idea of giving more jobs and expanding the roster a little bit and then also constraining the pitching staff and, uh, you know, keeping the endless parade of pitching changes uh, in September away. So that, that, that rule makes a lot of sense to me and I think it will get passed. Uh, Perry, what'd you think about that one? This is totally boring radio guys. I completely agree. I think this is a fantastic <laughs> idea. I see no, this, this is a great idea because this will actually improve the product without changing the game. I, I think this is a no brainer. I like the way you put that. You're right. It wouldn't, there would be no drastic changes. You wouldn't see anything like that. I, that that's a good way to put it there. So, which leads into what Chris was saying. Further reducing the number of mound visits would go from uh, five to six, I believe. It, yeah, it would be five to six. So, um, definitely. Or what, six, six to five? Six to five, yep. Sorry, six to five, yep. Yeah. So, um, I say go for that one. That, that, to me, that makes a slam dunk. And then the same thing with the roster one. The roster one makes purple sense, more more jobs and what have you. So, this one was an interesting one. Uh, to go to number three, which is allowing two sport draftees to sign major league contracts, and this is something that goes along with probably what happened with Kyler Murray, who announced he will be going to the NFL full-time and not pursue baseball. So the current rule setup is MLB draftees have to sign minor league contracts, which allows teams to play, pay players less and wait up to five years before putting them on a 40-man roster. So this kind of adds like what we were saying with uh, Kyler Murray or any potential two-way players on the stretch. But uh, Chris, what about you? What, do you, what about this one? Well, you know, it's interesting that they used to be able to do that. I think they used to be able to sign draft picks to to uh, pro contracts. I think Steven Strasburg was signed to one. And there used to be a lot of uh, two-sport athletes who signed to these. So I, I don't remember exactly why they, they stopped it. It must have been to try to prevent the higher contracts. But, yeah, you know, I, I always believe, you know, do whatever you have to do to get to athletes in baseball um, because you need <laughs> – you need exciting players and uh you know i don't know if it would have mattered with Kyler murray because you know they're talking about him possibly going in the top of the first round so the money i don't think would ever have been the same but um yeah whatever just make it so you can get the athletes don't uh don't let these guys go to other sports because this is your livelihood you need stars and stars are usually really athletic in my experience If they're not smart enough to realize their mind and head will be safer in baseball, then yes, throw money at them. Fine. (laughs) Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah, I was really surprised that uh, he actually chose football based off his size and based off the fact that he played Oklahoma. And Oklahoma, they're not exactly, with the exception of Baker Mayfield, but they're not like a quarterback school. And 
They're trying to say, well, he can use the Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson effect, but he had really one good year. And uh, and he's also significantly smaller than Russell Wilson, like uh, weight wise. I think Russell Wilson's like two hundred twenty five pounds or something like that. Kyler Murray's like one eighty. I don't know, but uh, he's Flutie esque. Yeah, I mean, he's Flutie esque, man. Yeah, no, that's. I think that he's the Flutie's the most uh, physically comparable to Kyler Murray. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, we talked about this before about with like Jeff Samarja's career earnings compared to Calvin Johnson. Like, if you're not a quarterback, you should go play baseball. But if you're a quarterback, you know, the way they protect quarterbacks for the most part now and the amount of money that they make, it's, it's, I think it makes a lot tougher decision. Not to matter. Well, unless you're Cam Newton, then they don't care. I mean, but yeah. Cam Newton. Fair enough. Yeah. That's, I mean, Cam Newton's taking a beating and somehow that guy, yeah. But, uh, but then again, he also brings it upon himself, too. But I digress. Um, so rule number four is the next one, which is uh, a 20-second pitch pitch clock, which I think – I don't think anybody knows this now. And we saw – Chris, you, you and I both saw that in Toledo. Uh, Perry, yeah, any, they, go ahead. No, they use it in the minors. It's fine. Yeah. It's, I don't know if they've looked at how much time it saves per game. The games do seem to go by fairly quickly. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be completely fine with that. Same with you, Perry. All right. <laughs> yeah, that way. Yeah. I'm, I'm agnostic on this. I don't really. I mean, I see the clock when I'm at the park, and I've never seen it enforced. I mean, it's just I don't watch yeah. as much baseball as you guys do. So, is it ever? Is the player ever been awarded a ball because the pitcher didn't deliver the ball in time? It. I think it's one of those things where they do it. They'll do it a couple times at the beginning of the year to, to show you that we're serious about this. It's like when uh, you know. When and then never do you, it again. Yeah, when you're a parent and you you say, "Well, I'm going to take that phone away." And you do it for a day, and then, like, I'm serious about it this time. And then, you know, two days later, the kid's on the phone again. Yeah. No. But, uh, no, no that, fine. That, yeah, it's, fine. I was gonna say, no, no one notices that anyways. But uh, this one, I think, is a good one. The next one is changing the draft rules to increase comp- uh, competitiveness. And it makes sense because the this comes from the Players Association. The proposed rule changes included suggesting that the league alter the draft to order the draft order to incentivize tanking. So uh, there's not really specifics involved with this, but I, I kind of like I like this idea a lot because you see it right now where its teams are just basically saying we're going to lose <coughs> caught tigers um, and uh, just uh, <laughs> I don't know if there's any you know, like maybe losing a few drafts off position isn't a big enough of a deterrent and this was said in the ringer but uh, I think that's something that teams should be penalized for anyways I mean tanking on purpose the NBA is getting that right now. I mean, the NBA teams are saying, quote, unquote, we're not tanking. But uh, if you ask the Knicks that question, well, they'll smile and, and, and give you a wink. But uh, I don't know. What, what do you about, Chris, what about this one? Yeah, You know, I like this in theory. Um, I, I kind of like the idea they're talking about um, teams who get revenue sharing. So the smaller market teams, they get extra draft picks possibly if they make the playoffs, which is kind of a cool incentive to really go for it. Um. And then the other one is, I think they were saying, like, if teams lose more than 90 games a year, multiple seasons, they might lose draft picks. It sounds fine. The problem is that every time, it's, this is like a weird Jeff Goldblum, Jurassic Park situation, where every, every time they change the draft rules, <laughs> teams almost immediately find a new way to game the system. You know, when, when they changed it to the, the slot slotting system, you know, it used to be you could just pay however much you wanted. The MLB would pout and then sign the contract like two seconds before midnight. 
Um, and then they changed it to the slotting system and teams, you know, realized they could start saving money up top and using it on players later and floating guys down to later in the draft. And it's just, there will always be ways to game the system, but, uh, but I, I mean, the aspect of it that I like more is the, uh, the rewarding teams for doing well rather than penalizing teams for doing poorly. Cause then you can end up, you know, you, you get a small market team that sucks. They don't have money. And then you're taking their draft picks away. It seems like this is. Why don't you just kill us already? <laughs> I say go to the NBA draft system. There's nothing that makes lottery. sense at this point. Just lottery it up. Just this, and they should make the lottery so that all the picks are even. I'm tired of this. The worst team gets more gets more balls in the hopper or whatever they're doing this now. <laughs> this is fine with me. Let's let's turn it into a show. Let's make it a big production. Let's take a tip from a league that knows how to get people watching year round. That's all I'm saying. I, I, yeah, I'm I mean, with you, Chris. I, who knows if it's going to work or not? But okay. I mean, and <laughs> the there's another. Broken, the other thing they could do kinda? is, is fu- what's that? I was saying, like, is the system broken as it is? Uh, kinda. So okay, let's yeah. try this and see what happens. Yeah, and I, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to a lottery system. The uh, the other thing they could possibly do is uh, make draft picks tradable, which they've never done before uh even they've done uh, sort of you know the competitive balance picks can get traded and stuff like that but uh you know i I mean that might i don't know if that'll (laughs) stop tanking but it it might make uh things more interesting but nobody really discussed that so i don't see that one coming yeah you know what i would love for the for a team could get better in a hurry real quick if they can get two first-round draft picks. If they can get, like, an arm, let's say they trade for a – they have a veteran who's not happy on a team. Like, for example, hypothetically speaking, the Tigers right now with Miguel Cabrera, and there's a team that wants a veteran. Like, let's say at the trade – like, it's so this is June, hypothetically speaking. Well, the draft's in June, right? Draft's in June? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the draft's yeah. in June. And the Giants are need one bat. They just need a bat to help them compete. And the Giants, who – did not do good last year. Have a top five pick. Tigers could use the top five pick. Give them Cabrera, and then for a second rounder, or like a sandwich pick, or however that goes, and that would that would provide a lot more intrigue to the league and kind of make it worth it a while too, where they can maybe offset a veteran for a couple of young talents, and then there would be good ways to be very interesting ways to shed payroll too as well with that. Yeah, I, I mean, it would it would add a, a huge layer. Uh probably several layers of complexity to the draft and to it wouldn't take long. I don't think for teams to figure out the exact value of every draft pick and stuff like that. But uh, I don't know. It's, it's one thing to, to, yeah, like I said, I don't think it would actually, it would probably contribute to tanking if anything, but uh, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't suggested. So I probably shouldn't have brought it up, but it's just something I'd like to see. Yeah, I definitely would. I would love to see something like that. So number, rule number six, and it's imposing a three batter minimum for pitchers. And this one I didn't really care for because the specialist. I mean, I don't know what would be solved with this, but they said there was an interesting stat here that in a typical MLB season, there's four thousand eight hundred sixty nine starting pitchers, which is thirty teams multiplied by one hundred sixty two games. In twenty eighteen, five starting pitchers failed to face at least three batters. Of an all-time high of eight, which came in 2013 or came in 1913. <laughs> I don't understand why change this rule. I mean, does it really slow down the game that much? 
I know what they're going for here. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead, Perry, because I know this one. Uh, I'll got, say, this, <laughs> this, not your favorite. This just strikes me as baseball. Uh, uh, you know, simply uh, running towards history, running towards its past. <laughs> this is the most reactionary thing I've heard out of out of Major League Baseball in a really long time. This is really stupid. <laughs> There's no reason for this. There's yeah, no reason for this. No one complains no. about this watching the game. Well, people complain about multiple pitching changes in in one inning. So. There would be this is I guess sort of designed to do that, but I think your 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 point about it being like running t- to the past is exactly right because it, it strikes me as the same sort of I- idea as banning the shift. You know, all they really yeah. want, they just want more balls in play. So they want sh- you know shitty relievers who are good at getting lefties out but not good at getting righties out. They want to force them to give up hard hit balls so there's more action. Uh, and what it, that won't work. What'll happen is those left lefty specialists will just go away, and they'll you know they'll get relievers who can get people out. <laughs> so yep, I don't. Know, it, it is a dumb rule. Yeah, I, I don't understand that. I think that just doesn't seem to add much to it. So uh, moving on real quick to the there's what's this one right here. There's number seven, which is a single trade deadline, which kind of. Uh, they want uh, the MLB, uh, the Players Association, want a hard cut off on all trades before the All Star break, in an effort to force teams to improve their rosters in the off season, free agency, what have you. But uh, this one, I, I, you know, honestly, I think July thirty first is perfect. Just one, like, just one trade deadline would be fine. But I really think this is kind of like pulling, uh, I don't gas, grasp for straws because I don't really care about this one either way. Yeah, I mean, it's another one where I understand the intent of the players. Like, they're trying to make it harder for teams to improve in the middle of the season so that they have to sign people in the offseason. But uh, this is one of the, another one of those ones where I don't think that will actually happen in practice. They just won't sign people. <laughs> and, and, I don't know, they'll still, or they'll sign them as free agents later in the season. It, uh I understand what they're going for. I prefer the idea, like I think we talked about it before, of the off season where they have a single, like one month long signing window. Where if you don't sign a free agent in that period, if you try to sign them outside of that period, there's a penalty of some sort. That seems like it would do more than a hard trade deadline, but I don't know, maybe I'm mistaken. Yeah, I mean it. Again, if it's if for even trade teams are usually they know by the end of July when they're out of the pennant race or not. If you do it before the All Star break, I think that's like that three week stretch is always like a good stretch of when teams jump out of contention. So leave it at twenty. Leave it. Leave ah, Leave it at July thirty first, and leave it at that. That's what I think. So the last one or the the last two really the one bringing the DH to the National League do it already. Everybody else is doing it. I don't see what the big deal is. That one's to me a no brainer. I don't know what you guys think about that one. Well, yeah, I mean, the people who like the DH, it seems like are either old or grew up in a National League city for the most part. Um, the people, they, they talk about strategy, but, you know, who cares about seeing pitchers who are hitting 100? I guess it's fun when they hit a home <laughs> run or Bartolo Colon does something fun, but, like, you know, yeah, I'd rather they, – they want balls in play. They want more action. Having a pitcher – bunting or striking out isn't really getting the job done. 
<laughs> How have we played the game by two different sets of rules for decades? Uh, <laughs> it's never, absurd. This has never made sense. This is this is baseball's equivalent of automatically fouling at the end of a basketball game to me. It's like this is stupid. This is incredibly stupid that they've done this for this long. Yes, do it already. Yeah, it's it's. I always try to like compare it to. It's like in football, like uh, in the in the AFC, the quarterback also has to play uh, linebacker. Also has to kick. Yeah, it's not that like no, you have to. Old school. Uh, all right, I'm gonna suck at it, but yeah, it's just a, it's a strange. And I understand that people Actually, are like that'd hey, be a really good rule. <laughs> I'd, I'd be cool with that in the NFL if quarterbacks had to place kick too. That'd be that'd be pretty good. Oh man, you, well, see, I mean, the, the, you see those old, passion kick. Yeah, I was gonna say you see those old like remember the kickers in the seventies those those big dudes that just had no business kicking. You saw them kick anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, that'd be awesome. I'd be down for that. Um, yeah, so, so I, I'm good with that. I I I wished that they were doing it this year, but. But whatever. And yeah, what else was there, Roger? Was there one more? There was one more. And this one, I think, this is the one where it was kind of like oh, the moving yeah, the mound back. Yeah, that one is. Uh, so what's interesting is is that um, in terms of um, moving the mound back, which has not been changed in more than 120 years, which I did not realize that because you think about the year of the pitcher, 1968, um, but that was the height of the mound. It went from 15 inches to 10 after the batting average in 1968 was 237. So um, the National League was one that established the current distance between the plate and the rubber in 1893 before the American League was even founded. But um, there's no sign. Like, I like what the ringer said, which is there's no scientific evidence or consensus on with link of anything between the mount height and pine, or pitching health, but that has been researched. But uh, they do. They have researched that the biochemical efforts of youth baseball moving players moving from 46 mound to a 60 foot six inch mound, but nothing else on adults changes distances and volume necessary to draw meaningful conclusions. So it's there's some upside to it, but like I don't know, this could do some real harm. And I, and not to mention, the, you you're realizing too, stats would also change too, and it's something that has been instituted since the t- baseball started. I don't know. This one, I, 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 and I think that's. I think it's a little unnecessary. Yeah, I actually feel like you know, Perry and I did a, a fake rules changes show long ago, <laughs> um, and uh, I think I, I, one of us brought up the the idea of moving the mound back. I think, but uh, yeah, this one. I mean, I, I think they they want to study it. I'm not exactly sure how they will study that. But the, yeah, the the implications there are are kind of wide ranging. If they move it back, you're having you're, you're talking about having to move it back. You know, everywhere in the minors and high school, and like when do you start doing that? When's the proper age to start doing that to put it back even farther? And 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 beyond that, like that's just I think dealing with fastballs for the most part. Although you know, I mean, we know guys are throwing sliders ninety miles an hour now and change up ninety miles an hour now, but. Putting it farther back is going to give pitchers uh, more of a chance to put more movement on the ball, like a, a slider instead of breaking like two feet. It's going to break like three feet now, and it's just like, uh, what are you? I don't know if that's going to provide a net gain, really. Uh, but let's not know. even talk about the amount of players who will have total yips trying to throw to first. Like this is oh. disastrous for your pickoff move. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the, this is a, a a huge. This would be a huge change. The, lowering the mound, I don't think would be that big of a deal. Obviously, they've done it and it seemed to work. Um, but uh, moving it, yeah, I, I, I go ahead and study it because I want to see interesting results. But I don't think that's ever going to happen. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. And I think that like that's the kind of like the I, again, I, I don't see the point of that. But uh, anywho, it's time for the Oscars. Yeah. Speaking of pointless things. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's actually. I want before we get the Oscars, I do want to talk about a little bit about the Grammys. Um, yeah, that's that's what uh, that's what I meant. I thought you were going to Grammys. You said Oscar. And oh yeah, no, no, yeah. The, the Grammys are absolutely pointless. Um, but uh, yeah, let's uh, talk about that for a quick second. So, a couple, you know, the Twitter. Like, I kind of avoided Twitter. Uh, like the plague on Sunday night. I didn't even know the Grammys was going on until. But I didn't want to be that guy saying, "I didn't know the Grammys was going on" because it's such a cliche hipster douchebag thing to say. So I didn't want to be that guy. Um, but uh, there was there was some like you know I watched maybe a minute of it, but I really just did not. I, I don't care. I, I didn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> some of the honestly like the only thing that people were uh, happy about was Red Van Fleet won Best Rock Band. I think it was. Was it, I, best rock album. Best rock album. So congratulations to Led Zeppelin two. I mean, uh, Grand Van Fleet winning um, for that, I guess. But uh, I don't like that band. I I, I will go on record to say it. I don't care what anybody says. Like it's it's almost like you can't say anything bad about anything. It's like you can't say anything bad about Kid Rock or anybody local in Detroit. But look, say what you will. There's always that two. Con- there's two contentions of fans. I tried. I tried listening to the album. I did. I legitimately did. I don't care for it. That's my opinion. Whether it's, you know, you're wrong. And now, because now these days you can't have an opinion without somebody, you know, arguing with you about it. And it's music. It's subjective. You know, like Chris likes hip hop from a certain era. I like music from a certain era. Or like I like, you know, there's my new ba- my new favorite bands from out of Australia that no one's probably ever heard of. But my point is, it's subjective. But I don't care that for that band. I just try and like, and like we're not trying to involve it. <laughs> and as my wife gives me a weird look. No, 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 no. I said Grand Van Fleet. Oh, yeah. yeah she, she goes, okay, that's fine. That, that band sucks, yeah. Who did she think you were going by? She was talking about, about Led Zeppelin sucks. Oh. Well, there are other people who think that, too, because they stole all their music. But <laughs> no, there's a lot it, does, of it does feel kind of like poetic justice for a, a band to get popular by stealing Led Zeppelin's sound and style. <laughs> yeah, but uh, there's also like there's um I mean there's Drake who has said some comments about like the like talk about the um you know even like the show producer uh, Ken Elric blamed Grammy's ongoing loss of cultural reference on a lack of diversity within the industry. The fact of the matter is, he said that we continue to have a problem in the hip hop world, which I don't know what that means, Chris. Well, you go, if you go and look at the list of like the artists that you can't believe don't have Grammys, other than Lifetime Achievement Grammys, the vast majority of them are hip hop artists. Like, like they don't they don't award hip hop in the big categories in the main the best best album, best song, or sorry, album of the year, record of the year, and song of the year. It doesn't happen. Yeah, then that's that's, a great, that's, the that's Gambino win was huge. Yeah, and that was that was the problem with the Grammys, though, Perry. It's not the art like the way he said it was, it was the artist problem. It's like, well, no, it's you guys' fault for being that dumb. Oh, I misunderstood. 
I thought he was admitting that this is the problem with the with the recording uh, recording academy, but no. No, yeah, no. yeah, he Agreed. said. Totally. Yeah, he, he said we continue to have a problem in the hip hop world. So what the hell does that even mean? You know, like it's what because they're controversial. Like they asked the Drake, Kendrick Lamar, and Charles Gambino all to perform, and they all declined the invitation. So I'm sorry, Chris, what were you gonna say? Yeah, I wasn't really gonna say anything. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I like I said, I didn't. I I did hear that uh, that uh, Charles Gambino won, and then the Cardi B won, and then the, some album of the year went to a Casey Musgraves. Yeah, who is who is unfamiliar to me. But then I didn't know I'd never heard of Halsey until she was on Saturday Night Live. So yeah, me neither. (laughs) You don't have fifteen-year-old daughters. I I have a fifteen-year-old son that doesn't tell me anything. (laughs) Yeah, and 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 so this. Go ahead, Perry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, this is this is what I found most interesting about the big win. Uh, and uh, this I'm stealing straight up from a fantastic music writer named Chris Melanti, who's got a great podcast of his own. You should check out, and he's a really good writer. Uh, so this I read from him that this is the first time in history that the Grammy winners in the in the, the two big categories, album of the year and record and song of the year, totally synced up with the uh, Village Voice Paz and Jot poll, which is like the biggest. U.S. collection of music critics voting for what was the best at the end of the year. Like, this is like the most respected poll of music critics around the country. And they had the Casey Musgraves album number one and Childish, the Childish Gambino single as the number one single. This has never happened. And that's really fascinating. <laughs> this, is the, this is the opposite of where the Oscars are right now. <laughs> it's really interesting that the, the, the Grammys want to line up with with the critics so strongly. Uh, that's, 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 that's really interesting. I, it'll probably never happen again, but that it happened once and it happened on these albums. I think mm-hmm. that's, I think that's meaningful. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It, it, it's also, it's all in what the, what the interesting with the article was, and this is something I take away in the, and by the way, the, if you get a chance, go to uh, NPR, it's actually, I'll post it in our show notes. Ronnie Carmichael said this and, it's something that I think rings true, which is why I don't maybe perhaps don't care about the Grammys, maybe perhaps a little bit. But um, mm-hmm. it's and the quote him for most of his existence, the Grammys has occupied the prejudicial throne of determining what art and culture is and what music best sounds like. Artists on the margins had to learn the code, learn the code to switch to get in where they fit. Now that hip hop artists and other historical marginalized voices have flipped the script on all that. His hegemony is past time for the academy to learn a new language, and it's really kind of like it, there's true. There's so much of the stuff that's going on in the social guy zeitgeist that I think affects that. But uh, either way, um, all I know is the Grammy Fleet won Best Rock Band, and I don't care. So that's uh, that's I take away from the <laughs> Grammys. And but there's no, but seriously, there's also I think just too because like just there is an element that I guess is missing. That doesn't represent what's really out there. I mean, I think the Grammys seem a little out of touch, but either way, uh, let's move on to the Oscars. So the Oscars are on February twenty fourth, I believe that is the date um, that the Oscars are taking place. One week from Sunday. One week from Sunday. Yep. So come up just around the corner. There is a buzz about the films. There is the there's controversial comments from uh, the American Psycho writer. Uh, Brent, is it 
uh, B, is it Ellis, right? Professional asshole Brett Easton Ellis? Yes, 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 yeah. Professional, I'm, um, I name drop every time, and I mention fashion things that I don't think no one gives a crap about. Yes. Um, so there's some comments about that in Black Panther. Um, then, of course, the star, getting some controversy behind that. So uh, let's, okay, let's kind of like, turn to the, let's start with the nominations. So we'll, we'll start with, um, Perry, how do you want to start this? You want to go with best, uh, and there, uh, also Chris has a good question too. There's going to be, so we're going to talk about Oscars, and then we're gonna, Chris has a question for all of us, and I already have kind of my answer kind of thought out a little bit. But uh, let's uh, let's go with Best Picture um, Oscar nominations. So Okay. We'll start right at the top of the field, huh? Yep. Let's start with the top of the field so here. You're not, you, go, go your ahead. nominees are Black Panther, mm-hmm. Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Roma, Green Book, A Star is Born, and Vice. Okay, so uh, Perry, what did you think of this? Uh, the the films that were chosen for this. Uh, I think it, okay. I understand why everything that's here is here. So there's no there's no surprises there at all. If you're watching the build up to everything leading up to this, these are the films I sort of expected. Um, honestly, the only one that sort of surprised me was Vice, uh, and not that I don't think it's worthy. Ju- I mean, I don't. But it's not that it's not. <laughs> it's just that it came out so late, and it's obviously a. I mean, it's it's two things. It is, it is you know, uh, it is obviously uh, it's going to tout a political side that uh, Hollywood likes to think it actually cares about. So that's that's easy for it to get behind. And on top of that, they really love the Big Short. Remember, the Big Short was nominated for Best mm-hmm. Picture too, and arguably could have won. <laughs> it probably finished second behind Spotlight that year. Uh, uh, I don't think Vice is as good as the big short. I think it's, I think it's a really interesting movie. Um, and so now the race, so to, to, if, you're, if you're filling out your pool and you're trying to figure out what's going to win, you got to remember that Best Picture works differently uh, than it has in years past. It's a preferential voting. It's not one, you don't pick one film and that's it. You rank all eight of those. And they line up all the first place votes, and if nobody got 50% plus one vote, they pick up the stack that got the least first place votes, and they redistribute to all those second place votes on those ballots. And they look for 50% one again, and if that doesn't happen, they pick up the smallest ballot and move the next vote down on all those. So what this has led to is incredible uh, films that everybody likes winning, which I say as dispassionately as I can, because <laughs> <laughs> nobody was really you know, going nuts over the shape of water last year, but everybody liked it. It's mm-hmm. good. And so if you're gonna if you're gonna follow that route, you've got two films that fall into that category, which are Green Book and A Star is Born. Mm-hmm. I think those would be your smart money favorites at this point. Probably giving Green Book the edge because the other way to figure out who's gonna win the Oscar is to watch who wins all the Guild Awards leading up to it. And uh, Green Book actually won the Producers Guild Award, which is one of the biggest indicators for Best Picture, especially since they've gone to the preferential voting. I think it's only been different once since they went to this style of voting. Uh, That said, the other film that has a real shot at Best Picture is going to be Roma. Alfonso Cuaron's film is the most artistic possible statement uh, to refute Trump without mentioning Trump or being about today whatsoever. It's a really beautiful movie on top of that. It's the best made movie of the year. 
Uh, and I think Cuaron's going to win his second Best Director Oscar. And I think it's really likely that he's going to win his second Best Director Oscar. And for the second time, that film isn't going to win Best Picture, <laughs> which is which is a shame because he's arguably the finest living director. And uh, that he doesn't have a Best Picture on his uh, on his resume is is truly ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, you know what's interesting about Green Book too is that you know Peter Farley's on there as you know one of the writers, and it just kind of cracks me up because you don't think of him, you know, you, I mean, as a producer wise, I mean, he has the Three Stooges Hall Pass, um, you know, like just some <laughs> of the you know Dumb and Dumber Two. Uh, it's just like some yep. of the movies he's been involved in, but then you see him with this book, you're like, or this movie, you're like, oh, well, I mean, it's the same guy who. Had ejaculation on some hair and Osmosis Jones. I mean, you know, you think about like, you yep. know, the, some of the work he's done, and and credit to him on that. So I mean, but at the same time, I never thought in a million years you'd see him on that list. And it's and it's it's great because he what the Fairly Brothers have always done well, even in their worst movies. The reason they're really good, and I swear, if you go back and watch them again, they know how to edit for comedy. It doesn't matter what the gag is. They know how to cut in order to, whether it's a physical gag, whether it's uh, whether it's just to cut correctly to a line of dialogue at the exact right moment. They're really good at that. You and I know this because in Green Book, I laughed at stuff when I saw it that was in the trailer, and that never happened. <laughs> if, if they give away a joke in a trailer, no one ever laughs at it at the movie, and this movie gets those laughs again. It's 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 an interesting movie because. All of these, all the stuff that's been hurled at it about it being incredibly old-fashioned, and that you know the character based on Doctor Shirley's family hates the movie, and that it's all about you know it's all about a white guy learning to be a nice guy again because he meets a black guy, uh, is all true. And at the same time, these are two excellent performances that have been directed really well by Peter Farrelly. They are both going to extremes, and they're both a tad cartoonish. And yet they both get to really real moments. Uh, they never quite, they never lose their humanity, and uh, and they're they're really good actors. So it works. It works so much better than it has a right to. And I can see why when people finally get around to seeing it, they really like it. Which is why, like I said, your universally liked films get a really good shot of taking home the gold. Hmm. All right. So uh, interesting. No, uh, 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 the star is born. Of course, uh, Bradley Cooper kind of speaking out about some of the. Travesties have been nominated for those rules, blah blah blah, kind of thing. And I, I don't know why he's speaking out so much about it. But before we get to uh, best actor in a leading role, the one thing about Bohemian Rhapsody, which is, I, I'll admit, I have not seen it only because I'm skeptical. Like I've, I've heard people who are big Queen fans say it doesn't really represent the band well. It's kind of neutered. Uh, but Perry, I don't know. What do you think of Bohemian Rhapsody? Um, it's I I don't. I understand why people like it. I think they like it for all the wrong reasons. And I really hate what the people who made the film say about it and what it is. <laughs> I, I hated hearing Graham King at the, uh, at the Golden Globes who produced the film as a great producer talk about how, you know, this is all about living your truth. And I'm like, well, no, Freddie Mercury didn't do that. Freddie Mercury <laughs> didn't tell anybody he had AIDS. Until the day before he died. Lost over yeah the truth in this movie and that's okay i mean i don't want i'm not dinging the film because it's not historically accurate what i am dinging it for is for making up stuff that wasn't true to add drama and then running away from things 
that would be inherently dramatic that are too uncomfortable to deal with. It's a chicken movie. <laughs> Rami Malek's fine. There's nothing wrong with the performance. He's going to win Best Actor. There's no doubt. But it's it is not a it's not a great movie by any means. It is, as a friend of mine said, the kind of movie that for the next ten years it's going to pop up on TBS and you'll just sit and watch it. It's a cable afternoon rainy day movie. That's that's what it is. That's The Martian. <laughs> Martian's a much better movie than Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> I was trying to think. I didn't know how old. I was just looking. Remy Malik. Remy Malik. He's thirty-seven. So I thought maybe he was still in his twenties. So no, nobody's threatening Brody. No, Brody's Brody's safe for another year. <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's doing and, now, but uh, he's safe. And we know we know Ronnie Malik's going to win because here's a number. If you want to follow his numbers, game, as I was saying, talk about those Guild Awards. If you look at the mm-hmm. Screen Actors Guild. He won the Best Actor at the Screen Actors Guild. So this is the, this was the 24th year that the Screen Actors Guild had awards. Okay, so that means there have been 96 winners in the film acting categories for a year. Mm-hmm. 71 of those 96 winners went on to win the Oscar. Okay, <laughs> on top of that, 20 of the 24 Best Actor winners have won the Oscar, and one of the four that didn't was Benicio del Toro for Traffic, who won the Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars instead of best actor. So this is really as close to a sure thing as you've got all night. Put put all your chips on Rami Malek taking home best actor. I didn't know he was 37. Nice. I thought he was in his 22, Chris. I thought the same thing. He looks remarkable for his age. But uh, after Speaking Lee, of 37, just real quick, that, yeah. that's how old Vincent Van Gogh was when he died. And that's and, a, uh, <laughs> William Dafoe. Nice. Willem Dafoe. I don't know. How, how old is Willem Dafoe? 60s. He's in his 60s. He's got to be in his 60s. Um, looking to see, he played Vincent Van Gogh in that movie, right? In that movie that he's yeah, he is sixty three. So, so I guess what I'm hearing is that giant buck teeth like remove fifteen years on you. Forget plastic surgery, just get some get some of them teeth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or it's funny too because he was he was in Aquaman and he looked like an elf in Aquaman. And when I saw, I admittedly I saw Aquaman, <laughs> but the uh, you know it's a. Uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, he, guess he was in that movie. So it's just one of those things where you're like, okay, you're in that movie, and then you're, you know, whatever. it is what it is. But, uh, you know, you cash one check-in, and then you go from there. But uh, actor leading role, Christian Bale goes for Vice, which, by the way, I mean, there was this great meme about him, like, the, the weight and all the stuff he does for all his roles. And I haven't seen Vice yet, but from all accounts, it's really good. Bradley Cooper, A Star is Born, which is a remake of, which is, the remake with um, Barbara Streisand and um, oh god, he, or uh, what's that guy? Chris Christopherson. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, Chris Christopherson. Uh, William Defoe. Which his... was itself a remake of a film from the fifties. Which was itself a remake of a film from the thirties. Which was itself a remake of a film with a different film name from five years earlier. This is <laughs> Star, is, Star is Born has been made many, many, many times at this point. There's a Simpsons episode too where uh, Homer plays the Colonel, and uh, you remember that episode, right, Chris? Where he plays the colonel? Yeah, where he plays, uh, he finds a country singer in the bar. And, oh, yeah, Lurleen. Yeah, 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 Colonel yeah. Homer. Yeah, Colonel Homer. <laughs> so, yeah. Lurleen Lumpkin. Yeah, that's one of the best uh, episodes right there. But, uh, yeah, of course, we mentioned Rami Mike um, for William Rhapsody and Viggo Morgensen for Green Book. So so you said Rami's a runaway winner. So but let's, talk, let's talk about um, Christian Bale's performance advice, Chris, or um, Perry. What did you think of him in that movie? It's um, it's it's exactly the performance the movie wants. So, in that sense, I'm not gonna. I, I got I got nothing negative to say. 
it's a really interesting movie. It's a movie that's really angry, which I re- really is the best thing about it. It's sort of the best thing and sort of the, the, the ding on it is it's, 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 it's a really, it's a really sophisticated movie that is as angry as like the best punk album. <laughs> and the performance is, uh, I, I, the only adjective that comes to mind is, is wicked. Like he's truly not trying to get, he's not really trying to get inside and understand this guy because the movies, that's the movie's job, right? The movie wants to tell you what this guy was and what his motivations were. And he's not a guy who ever did that himself. And so it's a very, it's a very two-dimensional performance, truth be told. Purposefully, so I'm making it sound like it's not a good performance, and it is. It's exactly what the movie requires. And uh, he finds the voice, man. It is fun to listen to that voice. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm, put, I'm playing it underneath it's, you right now. I'm playing it's worth his... seeing. Check it out. I was saying, I'm playing, I'm playing his voice underneath. The, I was playing some of the, a little bit of the movie underneath you when I was talking about it because his voice in there is pretty good. Not to mention, there's a chance to see Sam Rockwell as President Bush, and he looks exactly like him. It's really, really, yeah, bizarre. But how close it, he looks like him. It's a, it's a really smart performance. His Rockwell's. It's really good too. It's and it's, it is less like you see that and you realize why Adam McKay has grown so much as a filmmaker once he stopped making movies with Will Ferrell. That's <laughs> all I'm gonna say. And it's so weird to see like that. Steve Carell plays Donald Rumsfeld. Like it's just, yeah, it's just. That's a brilliant performance too. That's that's my favorite performance in the movie actually. But Carell can do no wrong in my world. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so those are the leading actors or leading for actor in the leading role. Let's get to actresses in the leading role, which uh, goes as following: Yastisa Aka Yalitza Apricio. Apricio. Okay, for Roma. Glenn Close for The Wife, Olivia Coleman for The Favorite, Lady Gaga, A Star is Born, and Melissa McCarthy for Can You Ever Forgive Me? So, uh, Perry, which one stands out to you above all? I, and I'll be honest, the only one I've seen out of this is A Star is Born. Um, I did not know about that Melissa McCarthy movie. Uh, yeah, few have. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, it's a I actually know show. about that movie, although uh, I haven't seen it. I don't remember this uh, movie. So I will confess... It's often, it's rare that this happens. I have not seen The Wife. I've not seen the Glenn Close film, mm-hmm. and she's going to win. <laughs> she's going to win for a variety of reasons. She's more than due. I think this is her eighth nomination, and she's never won. It's stunning that she's never won. Uh, I, I have no doubt that she's fabulous in the movie. Um, they're not going to give it to the woman from Roma as great as she is in that movie. Uh, I don't think the favorite's going to win anything other than your coffee table awards. I think he's got a real good shot at cinematography and art direction and costumes. Uh, Gaga, Gaga, Gaga only wins if the Academy wants Gaga to win. <laughs> if they think this is a really great headline and they all decide, yes. If they do, I think they've made a terrible, terrible mistake. <laughs> not that I think she's bad in the movie by any means, but it's not, this is, this is, it is it is the it is the least performance of the five. I grant that it makes the movie. If you like the movie, it's because she's it's because of her work in it. But that's that's a rough win. That's the Academy selling out hard time if she wins this. And uh, the most McCarthy Award uh, nomination is nice. It's her second. Remember, she got nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Bridesmaids. They really <laughs> like her. 
And yeah. this is a film that uh, uh, I, I like not nearly as much as many other people do, but uh, it's it's her toning down. It, she's she's in her she's in abrasive mode, but it's not. She's downplaying it. It's not like in your face, over the top. It's very controlled and very quiet. And uh, it's a, it's a character that is completely self destructing. It's a really interesting real life story that's probably more interesting than the movie they made about it. <laughs> So uh, moving along to actor in supporting roles. So Adam Driver for Black Klansman. Sam Elliott, about damn time. Sam Elliott's one of my favorite actors of all time uh, for A Star is Born. <laughs> um, Richard E. Grant for Can You Ever Forgive Me? Sam Rockwell for Vice. We've just mentioned that. And Marshala Ali for Green Book. Marshala. Marshala. Sorry. Marshala for Green Book. Mah- Marshala. Marshala. And uh, Marshala, <laughs> getting the, he was in Daredevil. No, no, no. Um, uh, oh, gosh, what did I saw. Um, uh, was it the? What's the other Marvel character? The Iron. Oh, the um, Luke Cage. He was in Luke Cage. It was season one of Luke Cage. That's where I first saw him. And then currently he's on season three of True Detective. But uh, what about you, Peter? What was your? Who's your favorite in this category? Uh, Mahershala Ali's your odds on money to win this thing. He won the SAG award. You gotta remember he won this category two years ago for Moonlight. Moonlight. So this would be two and three years, which is, is a rarefied company. The only person I can see upsetting him in this would be Sam Elliott. And it would simply be a, oh my God, we all just love Sam Elliott. Let's give him an award. Because this is not the most interesting Sam Elliott performance, unless you want to say that Sam Elliott is solely responsible for Bradley Cooper's performance, because all Bradley Cooper did in that movie was use Sam Elliott's voice. And, and I think he hired Sam Elliott to be in the movie just so that voice would always be there and he'd never lose it. I really don't think there's any other reason that Sam Elliott is in this movie. Um, I can't see anybody else upsetting him here, uh, and it's... I, I I can't. I love Richard E. Grant. He's a spectacular actor. I'm so happy he got a nomination. Uh, it means he'll get in the Academy. I'm the same reason I'm glad. Uh, I, I'm so glad Adam Driver's there. He's a fantastic young actor, and uh, it's it's good. It's good for him to get to vote in the in the Oscars going forward. Yeah, put your money on Mahershala Ali. All right, uh, actress in supporting role, which. Uh, one of uh, I'll talk about my favorite in a second here, but uh, Amy Adams for Vice, uh, Marina de, de Tevra for Roma, Regina King. It's about time she gets some recognition. She's been just a little background. I've I've had a thing for her since the days of two two seven. If you guys are familiar with that old NBC comedy from <laughs> the eighties, um, she played the daughter of um, one of the characters. But uh, Jackie, Mary. Jackie, Jackie. No, she wasn't Jackie. Wait, she, Jackie. No, she, I thought she was Mary's daughter. She was no, she was Mary's daughter. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, she was Mary's daughter, and then Jackie was the neighbor next door. Yeah, yeah, or down the hall, whatever she was. Mary. Um, so random two two <laughs> reference, two two seven reference. Um, but she's always, I mean, she's always good in everything she's in. I've always enjoyed her work. Emma Stone in the favorite, and Rachel Weisz, who is in the favorite as well. Who also, by the way, was really good in Constantine. So it's one of my favorite movies with her. But. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so Perry, who, who you like? Rachel Weisz is good in everything. Yes, there are no bad Rachel Weisz performances. That is a fact. Um, who is your favorite in this one? So this is where it goes, this is where it's going to get interesting because the person that won the uh, SAG Award for Best Supporting Actress was Emily Blunt for A Quiet Place. Notice she's not on this list. <laughs> so this is relatively wide open. 
I have to believe that uh, Regina King has won a bunch of the critics awards at year end. She is, um, she is easily the thing that most people can agree is the best thing in if Beale street could talk. And so it's a, it's a, it's a chance for the Academy to give that film award where it didn't bother with it anywhere else. This of course was the new film from Barry Jenkins who made moonlight two years ago. Uh, so it would be it, it, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which being, of course, she deserves it. Regina King is probably your favorite here. Um, I could see it going a couple different ways. I, I, I adore Amy Adams. I had a great conversation on Facebook years ago with people. Chris, I, you probably chimed in on this. I asked if we all agree that Meryl Streep is the best living American actress who's second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I kind of landed on Amy Adams. <laughs> and she's done nothing to make me feel otherwise in the last five years, aside from getting sucked into the horrible DC universe. Other than that, <laughs> she's gold for me. <laughs> um, but my problem here is I think, I think her, uh, she, she's in Vice playing Ling Chaney, and that's the worst character in the movie. I think it's the least well thought out. I think she's got the least interesting amount of things to do. So her winning, while I'd be happy for Amy Adams to win any award at any time, and she should have had at least two Oscars already, uh, this would be like, you know, this, is, this would be a makeup if Amy Adams were to get this. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I just don't see it happening. Yeah, no, I think she, she is, she's very, I, I think about the thing about Amy, and, Amy, uh, Amy Adams is even like a movie like American Hustle, she was she's always yeah she's always good in everything but just that's one of my favorite roles with her on that and then the last thing I really want to that mention that movie go ahead Perry that movie's spectacular and yeah. she is she should have won the Oscar that year she should that's a great performance fantastic performance she was she was so good in the movie and then lastly before we get to Chris's question animated feature film and the only reason why I mention is because I love animation and um, you guys got a chance to see Spider Man into the Spider Verse which was nominated and good because I keep hearing nothing but great things about it. Uh, Disney's uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet, uh, Mirai, um, Isle of Dogs, which is a course totally 100%. Wes Anderson. Yeah, Wes Anderson joint. You can always do. I didn't have to look at that movie to know that was a Wes Anderson movie. That's right. And uh, he's got that aesthetic <laughs> to it. And uh, The Incredibles 2, which I think was one of my favorite movies I've seen in a long time. Love that movie. Great sequel. But, uh, but yeah, I my, you know what? If I make a prediction, I hope. That uh, Incredibles two, but I, again, I heard nothing but good. Chris, you were the one that told me that Spider uh, Spider Man into the Spider Verse was really good, right? I, I absolutely, I, I loved that movie. I saw it twice. It, I felt like they made it for me. Um, <laughs> even even though I'm not I, like I'm not the world's biggest comic book guy, but it just it was just like a hip hop movie. It was like there's spray painting and rap, and it made me like modern rap songs that I never would like. Otherwise, and had a great payoff. And I just, I really, it, it is visually uh, really interesting and and, and uh, super colorful. I don't know. I just, I, I thought it was a really good, really good movie. All right, Perry, what about you? Spider-Verse is going to win this thing. It's going to win Spider-Verse it? is winning this thing. Yeah. Everybody loves this movie. It was, it, you know, and it's, it's really interesting. It was made for, uh, you know, seemingly the wrong reasons. This is, this is of course from Sony because remember Sony has had the rights to Spider-Man. That's why we had those awful new Spider-Man movies every three years, just so they could retain the rights. And then 
there was too much money on the table and they figured out how much Disney was going to pay them so that they could have a live action Spider-Man in the Marvel cinematic universe. And as part of this deal though, Sony kept the rights to animate Spider-Man. And so that's why this film is what it is. It's, it is, it doesn't look like the Marvel movies. Thank God. Cause I'm sick of looking at them. It <laughs> looks unlike anything else out there. Really the, the entire animation style is great and utterly unique and does that great thing where it's all human-ish, but it's not in the weird uncanny valley zone. And the great thing about any cartoon, any truly you know cartoony-looking animated thing with superheroes is, I don't care if the physics don't work. <laughs> I can look at CGI all day long and go, well, that can't happen. But if it's a cartoon, I never think that can't happen. So this is the perfect venue to tell these stories again. And they introduced a whole bunch of different Spider-Men which, of course, now they can make movies about any of them. They've set themselves up for the next five or six films they want to do. Uh, and even the stinger at the end after the credits is fantastic. Oh, God, I, that was... It's a really entertaining film and well done. I was so happy when I saw that. Uh, I stayed after the credits and saw that. It was like a, it was like an internet meme brought to life. It was, yeah, it was great. And you know who voices uh, is that Spider-Man 2046? I, again, I don't know my Spider-Man lore well enough, but that that version of Spider-Man, do you know who's voicing that, Chris? Uh, um, no, I don't. It's Oscar Isaac. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> who I hope they get for, for a movie. He'd be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of voices in there that, like, I didn't realize, uh, I think, uh, who, who plays Kingpin in that? I forgot. Oh, oh, yeah, I'm not going to pull it either. I know it was somebody, and I completely forgot. I was just so happy that John Mulaney's getting a nice big paycheck because I, I love Mulaney, and he was the perfect choice for Spider Ham. Yeah, and and I think I told you like it, it has, uh, it has one of the more satisfying third acts of a movie I've seen in a long time for me at least. <laughs> like they, they you did you did tell me that. Yeah, they, they wrap sort of everything up. They say good goodbye to the characters in a great way, and it uh, I don't know. It just felt. Like a good conclusion. And like I said, I, as silly as it sounds, I think the post-credit scenes just put that little bow on the end. It was like, oh man, all right. So <laughs> this, this is this is what's sad about my life is I can only talk about these movies. I, I saw the Incredibles. <laughs> I saw um, Spider Verse. We went and saw a Lego Movie Two the other day, and I didn't like it. And I saw the kid who would be king the other day, and I didn't like it. Basically, all oh, I see it was, is uh, it was I could take my son to. It was Lev Shriver, by the way. Leave Schreiber, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Voiceover King Leave Schreiber. God, dude. Yeah. I, now I'm gonna probably at some point I'm gonna rent that movie over the weekend because Schreiber can do no wrong. I mean, he was a, he was a good saber. He was a good saber tooth despite that shitty movie. Uh, <laughs> you know that was a bad movie, but uh, he could do. I mean, the guy's the voiceover work is outstanding. I mean, he's he's also good in. Goon. I agree. I mean, if you even Goon, I don't know if you guys have seen Goon, which is that the hockey movie. Yeah, yeah. he's really good in that movie too. Yeah. He plays. Yes, he I heard that was good. I never did see it. Yeah, he, we, we we probably should mention ne- best director. He's never been bad. We? Yeah, we should mention best director. I'm sorry. What was that, Perry? He's never been bad. He's no. one of those guys. He's he's that you know he is that hardcore stage trained dude who just has that thing. He's an actor. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he nails it. I love it. Leo Schreiber in everything. All right. So for uh, directing, and then we'll move on to the question here. Uh, Spike Lee for Black Klansman. The Cold War was uh uh, okay, so uh, let me try this. Uh, 
<laughs> you want to give it a shot? I can mail you. All right, okay. You don't have to try I'm, I'm pretty good with Polish names, so here I go. <laughs> uh, or he might be Russian. I'm not sure. Uh, Pawel. No, he's Polish. Okay, so Pawel Pawlowski? Pawlowski? Palakowski. Palakowski. I was close. Okay, so that. Yes, it was very good. Now, can you do the Greek one? Um, no, forget that. That's all, that's all you, Perry. Yorgos. Yorgos what? Yorgos Lanthimos. Lanthimos, okay. Yorgos. Oh, that was a lot easier than I thought it was. Okay. Uh, Roma is Alfonso Corion. Cuaron. 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 And uh, Vice is Adam McKay. Yeah, this is, um, so this is going to continue more than likely a long string of uh, best directors, going to uh, non-Americans. <laughs> That's who's been winning this award in mass quantities over the last uh, 15 years or so. It has been, there's been a, a noticeable lack of white American men winning this award. Uh, think of that what you will. <laughs> it, they haven't been non-existent, but it, it's been rare. Uh, and I, it's, I, I truly believe Alfonso Cuaron is going to win this thing. Uh, and if he doesn't, it's going to be Spike Lee. And I don't know if the Academy's gotten to the point that they're giving Spike Lee an Oscar. That's going to be something. <laughs> I, I want to see that speech. <laughs> I want to hear that speech. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they want to do that. Um, but I don't see any other way Black Klansman's going to win anything. And so if, they're, if the logic is they want to spread it around, that's the easiest place to land. I hope not. I hope it's Quran. Quran deserves it. Um, the other baggage on all of the Roma stuff is you got to remember it's a Netflix movie, <laughs> and they are Netflix has been really opposed to letting things play in theaters. They they ended up getting Roma out on like about four hundred screens, and they're not promoting it heavily in theaters by any means. They're not releasing the box office totals. <laughs> You can't find out how much money Roma made in the theater because they don't want you to know because they want you to watch it on Netflix. <laughs> Just like they won't tell you how many people stream their titles every month. Uh, so, you know, if the whole Academy says, no, we're not ready to embrace you just yet, Netflix, it might go somewhere else. And at the same time, they might say he made the best movie of the year because he did. He, he, he absolutely did. So let's make sure Quaron has this again and wins his second best director Oscar, which would be awesome. <laughs> So, no. What was his? What was his first one for? Gravity. Gravity. All right. So that being said, those are the Oscars next Sunday at uh, yeah February twenty fourth uh, Sunday. I think it starts at five o'clock on ABC. So there's no host. There's no you know I don't know what's going on with that. But there was originally it was supposed to be, um, uh, what's his face. Uh, Kevin Hart. Hart. Kevin Hart, but somebody, some somebody decided to dig up old tweets because that's. I, I, I don't. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, but apparently he can't tweet people. Yeah, don't, don't tweet, tweet. Yeah, don't tweet, and not to mention making fun of his stand up or like it's just it's ridiculous. He was picked apart for, um, whether you thank you, um, whether you agree with what he says or not is, but anyways, so that's yeah. Lesson lesson is don't tweet. Um, but Chris. Go ahead with your question. I thought it was a really good question. And this was based off the conversation that you had with Chris Perry. So go ahead. Take it away. Well, just, yeah, the, the first episode of the – we're watching here. We're watching here. Uh, we're watching here. 
you guys basically, I think you, you called it your your what your film DNA, your cinema DNA, or whatever. Your cinematic DNA. Cinematic yes, your DNA. Cinematic so, DNA. So the idea being that there's like the three movies that that kind of shaped your film life, I guess. I don't know. Just yeah. three three big movies for you. Um, and so I thought Roger and I should might as well give it give that a chance. You can you can run through yours too if you want to. Again, I know you've. I would love to hear yours. Um, well, all right. I, um, so, and, and I would also encourage people who listen, uh, to send us theirs because it's always fun, but, uh, yeah, please do. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not a movie critic. Uh, I've read a lot of film reviews, uh, but, uh, yeah, the first one for me is actually Scarface, which is not a great movie. I recognize that <laughs> it's got a lot of problems. Uh, <laughs> It, I'm going to uh, assume you mean not the Howard Hawks 1933 movie, right? No, this is this is the uh, which I thought <laughs> Paul was, Pacino. Got it. I, I thought it inspired Oliver Stone to write the second one or whatever. But uh, yeah, this one directed by Brian De Palma, 1983, but, Al Pacino, Michelle Pfeiffer. Breaking news, by the way, uh, uh, Mario and Pepe uh, has been hired by the Red Sox. Hey! So wow! And the Red in the Red in the radio booth. Oh, there you go. Sorry, I didn't mean to for, interrupt you, but that was uh, for Mario. Yeah, so he'll be working the Red Good Sox. Good for Mario. Yeah, that's a that's a yeah, that's a not, not bad going from uh, the last place Tigers to the World Champs, where I guess the Tigers didn't finish in last place somehow. But um, well, for a good five ten seconds there, I don't hate the Red Sox. That was an interesting <laughs> feeling. <huh? laughs> well, I won't be listening, so whatever. Um, but uh, anyway, what I was saying about Scarface, uh, it. Uh, yeah, it's horribly violent. Uh, lots of things wouldn't work anymore. But uh, I, it's just a movie that that when I was a kid, like eight or nine, my brother snuck me into his room so I could watch that movie, <laughs> which was very wrong. But uh, it, it, <laughs> I think it was the first. Uh, now I'm sure it wasn't by any means the first movie to do this. Uh, it was the first movie I remember where the main character is a bad guy which is you know all the rage with the golden age of television with tony soprano and and you know walter white and stuff like that but you know movies have been doing this forever and i don't, I don't know that just kind of uh, stuck with me and then it became scarface became this ridiculously huge movie in the world of rap which you know is kind of what i grew up listening to like the ghetto boys sampled every single fuck from that movie i think <laughs> every time pacino said fuck they put it on a record um and then a ton of rappers used just used straight up used beats from the the soundtrack, which was by Giorgio Moroder, you know, great uh, old composer from from movies in that era. Um, yeah, and it just it was something that, that that kind of shaped the early portion of my life. Like I, I watch it now, and I think, oh boy, but it was uh, it was kind of a big movie for me growing up. Um, the second one I have it, it was interesting. We were just talking about Spike Lee. Uh, for me, is Malcolm X. Yeah, Which is, I know you love that movie. It's another strange one where, uh, I don't know, I mean, I, I think I was like 12 when I saw that. And it just kind of changed my outlook on, on things. Like I, I, it was when I started getting angry about stuff. <laughs> um, but really, I mean, I think it's a, it was a fantastic movie. Denzel Washington was amazing. It's, I, I don't understand how he lost to Al Pacino. I mean, I do understand. You've explained it to me before, Perry, but uh, still. <laughs> it's it's 
it is one of the great injustices in Oscar history. And it's not that Pacino's bad instead of woman by any means. It was just a makeup Oscar. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a bummer. Like somebody, you know, has this this incredible role and they lose to a makeup Oscar. It's like, oh. Uh, and also, you know, Spike Lee wasn't nominated for that. I don't think the film was nominated. Um, but, you know, I, I just it's it's a fascinating story about one of the most interesting people of the 20th century. And it's really well done. And I think uh, the use of the song A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke toward the end of that, when you, when it just, you, you know what's coming from Malcolm X. He's run yeah. down and paranoid and, and, and it's just, I think it's one of my favorite uses of, of a song in a movie. And I think you know, Malcolm X was friends with Sam Cooke, so it was kind of an interesting little touch there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so that one, I haven't watched it in a few years, but I always enjoyed that movie. And then, uh, and then the final one is kind of off the uh, off off the beat path, I suppose. Uh, but you know this already. Part it's the Insider, which uh, another Al Pacino <laughs> yes, movie. Yes, I do. Which I, nobody, I don't think anybody else out there is going to go and call this like a classic, great movie. Uh, I don't know if it has a whole lot to say other than corporations suck, which I'm fine with. Um, <laughs> But it's just there's a certain kind of movie that I, I really like, and I don't know how to describe it other than just kind of like a, a office drama. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's about yeah. There's there's journalism and there's uh, it's kind of there's tense situations that that are just dramatic. Um, and uh, and the reason I picked this is I, I I spent a whole summer watching it. Just we we watched it damn near every day for some reason. Uh, my friend Ken and I, and I, it, I at the time I didn't know what I wanted to do for my career, and I, eventually I was like, you know what, journalism, let's do it. And uh, <laughs> you know, not to say that that worked out entirely well for me. I, I'm not technically a journalist, but uh, it kind of changed the path of my life. So, uh, and, and it's just because this silly Michael Mann movie that that I really enjoy. Oh, it's hardly silly. I mean, that film was really Yeah, that's true. I shouldn't say love silly. love that movie. I mean, that movie's got a stellar critical reputation, so. Yeah, I mean, Russell Crowe is, is spectacular in it. Pacino's good. Uh, yeah, it's a really, it's a good movie. I just, I, I don't think you'll find it uh, as a life-changing movie for many people <laughs> other than me. <laughs> All right. How about well, you, Roger? I, uh, so, when... Chris proposed this question. I had to think about a lot of movies because I, I've, I've been influenced by zombie movies where the point where I've had nightmares. I think about the <laughs> John Carpenter's 1984 The Thing, which forever will scar me. Um, but I, in terms of three movies that really shape me that like I just like that I think about, I close my eyes and smile or have a, a moment with or just kind of some sort of thing that hit me profound, like deeply – um, Pulp Fiction is one of them um, because it was the first movie that I saw that wasn't. I mean, grew, growing up, we uh, we didn't go to the movies a lot. We were kind of like we just we went when we could. We went to the dollar show and really was whatever was going on in a theater and anything like that. So um, my brother brought it home on Blockbuster Video and I watched it. And I watched <laughs> it when I was um, I watched it when I was like I was in junior high. And then the when Marvin gets shot in the face, I, I inappropriately laughed. For 20 minutes, I rewound it and watched it part over and over again. Why? To this day, I can't tell you. But there's so many quotable lines. But just, it's such a great movie about dialogue. And it was in a period of time where, you know, as you get into high school and college, you know, you do that thing where you go out with your friends at Rams at 2 o'clock in the morning and have a plate of fries. You think you're having a kind of like that conversation he's having in the diner or even like the, you know, like just 
the the whole him talk about the coffee and just like the you know I know my coffee what I choose what my <laughs> wife chooses is shit, and then it comes to kind of fruition later on in real life. It's I don't know Quentin Tarantino. You know, if, if that's that, if it's one of those movies that just it profoundly shook how I, I how I saw movies from here on out, dialogue wise, and and just uh, you, think, you know, like if you think of like Mash with um, in terms of how Mash was one of the first movies where they had like multiple dialogues going at once, which is strange to think that was such a novel concept in the seventies, but then it's become more as it go on. But I think Pulp Fiction is one of them. Um, I think number two, and this is like it's. And I, I saw this movie later on in life, but it was a movie that also kind of I broke I, I broke down and watched it a couple times, and it took two days to watch. It was Deer Hunter, and the reason mm. why Deer Hunter oh. Deer Hunter is so it, it just that it's, you know here they are in this Pennsylvania town, and it was like this. There's a, and that director, I believe, the director never did another movie again. Right? He did like he just uh, period. Right? Oh no, Chino did other movies. But they were really Michael, badly. Yeah. We can talk about Michael Cimino for a long time. Yeah, That's we a could, fascinating dude. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, there's definitely a fascinating case. But the reason why Deer Hunter had a profound impact on me as well is I didn't watch that movie till a few years ago, and I wanted to kind. Of, I've always wanted to see it. Was always in the background to watch it. And it again, just Christopher Walken's performance was just legendary. Mill Streep did such a great job. But it was the first time I saw Robert De Niro in a movie, and I watched a lot of Robert De Niro movies where he didn't like he. Every movie he had some sort of like it's like kind of De Niro esque parts to him, like Taxi Cab and or Taxi, and um, there's always like the the Goodfellas, uh, Once Upon a Time in America comes to mind, all that stuff. But it was the first movie where you didn't see him in that kind of like in a it was in a different element. But just the way it was presented, the how the 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 story profoundly changed everybody's life, and just even how what happened to Christopher Walken. That movie really, I, I love that. I love that movie. I love the way it was shot. Um, and, and the rats, the yeah. water too, you're like, oh, oh, just like, you had a sense of, like, out of all the Vietnam War movies in that period of time from, what was it, like, 76 to, like, to 90, that movie, I think, captured Vietnam the best, at least in my opinion. Um, only because of what you read about in the books and all that stuff, but just, I felt like that, what he went through is, a, like, just to capture almost, when it wasn't even known as uh, CSTD, or the, um, is it, um, Shaka was PTSD. It, yeah, PTSD. If there was a, an element of that, and we didn't have a name for it, Deer Hunter put a name to it. So, yeah. Uh, lastly, I think, and this is one of those movies too that, like, as a kid, and even now I look at it, and you guys will probably laugh at me about this, but I don't care. It's fine. Um, Transformers the movie, 1986, and uh, the reason why <laughs> that movie profoundly. Okay, let me let me explain my reasons why it profoundly impacted me, because it was like that in Star Wars. They could put in a tie, but the reason why Transformers movie, you think about it this way, you're why imagine there is no other movie in history, there is no other movie in history where the main character and the, his supporting cast dies within the first twenty five minutes of the movie, never. Like you th- <laughs> think, oh, think about it this way, Optimus Prime, or like you know you, the, the the scene that like you know fifteen minutes in, tra- the Decepticons come in and they totally prowl dead. Huffer, dead, like just like boom, 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 like Ironhide. All these characters you watch in the cartoon that are like great secondary heroes, all of a sudden Megatron and Starscream destroy. Like out of nowhere, you're like, what the hell? And like you're six years old, like what the hell is happening? And then Optimus it's like Prime, killing all the dogs from Paw Patrol. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, or like um, or you know, or uh, <laughs> or like um, or 
like you know the five old from American Story or like American Story. He, yeah. he just suddenly gets his head blown off when he's trying to cross to you know in New York or something. But like, but that was like it was one of those things that like within twenty five thirty minutes your favorite characters are dead. That's and, and you find out later the only reason I did this is because they want to sell more toys and no other movie. <laughs> you can say what you will about any other movie, and it's a cartoon. And I get it. Yada yada yada. Fine, whatever. But if you see the way the Transformers movies are now, with the exception of Bumblebee, which was phenomenal, that was that was great. Capture the cartoon better. Transformers was one of those movies that made me realize that anything could like every movie or every movie, every cartoon, everything you had at that time as a kid had a happy ending. Transformers the movie did not have a happy ending. I mean, yeah, did they save you know the universe from? Um, Gal or from um, uh, God, I forgot the name of the, the uh, name of the planet, but the, um, from the guy dest- destroying Earth, absolutely, or from the from Orson Welles' character uh, destroying uh, Cybertron and Earth, of Gal- course. Galvatron. No, not, not Galvatron. Um, Galvatron was, by the way, Lem- look, look, at the, look at the cast on that: Robert Stack, Leonard Nimoy, Eric Idle, Eric Idle. Like, there's just some big names. In this <laughs> Scatman Crother. Yeah, there's some big names in this damn movie. <laughs> So now I have to ask you this question, Roger, yeah. since you love this movie. Mm-hmm. When you saw Boogie Nights, you got how dodge. great was the scene in the recording studio for you? Because I didn't know the reference when I first oh, saw yeah. Boogie Nights. No, no, no. I, that, yeah. I was unfamiliar with the Transformers movie, and my brother, who's five years younger than me, had to say, that's what that's from. And I lost it yeah. when I found that out. Yeah, that that's when I saw that, I cracked up because I'm like, that's, that's what I'm saying, like, and that, that's another great movie that I could probably, if we had a top 10, Boogie Nights would be up there. Because Boogie Nights also <laughs> is like, that movie, in terms of how they present pornography, but also the way, like, Alfred, um, is it uh, Mordea or um, Alfred, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Alfred Mordea? Alfred Molina? My Alfred Molina's one of the best secondary characters of all time. Just coked <laughs> out of his Cosmo. mind. He's Chinese. Oh, yeah. And they keep blowing up fireworks, just to blow it up fireworks, just this entire scene where he's just going on like fire fireworks, and they just look. And Thomas is it Thomas, Thomas Jane looking so pissed off the entire. Uh, is Thomas Jane? Is it? Yeah, yeah, Thomas yeah, Jane. yeah. Thomas Jane looking pissed off the entire time, like, and then like, he's just like, oh, wait for this part, wait for this part, that, 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 that. And he's just like, you don't recognize him, too. You don't recognize him. It's so God, that movie's so great. That that provokes that, but no, yeah. When I saw that in there, it was just. <laughs> You know what? We're gonna play that in the background right now because it's deserved to be that way. But like, it's honestly you got the touch. You got the touch. You know? Um, yeah, I'm I haven't played it right behind me, but you you can hear now. Sound studio recording, March 1983. <laughs> but like that movie, Transformers. I know, like I said, it's not. It's a cartoon. I get it. I understand. Um, it's just. When you're younger and you see people you know that die, and it's kind of like you lose innocence to it, and that's why I died. Oh, here it is, yeah. With Mark Wahlberg with this disgusting red outfit with the leather pants on. It's taken away from my vocals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know if you guys can hear it or not, but uh. I can't. But no. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. Like a guitar solo. Oh, but anyways. I want to do my favorite. I want to do my second favorite throwaway line from Boogie Nights now. My favorite being Cosmo. He's Chinese, which <laughs> is stolen from another movie. We don't need to get into this now. But my other favorite is Jack. You want me to do the Spanish accent? That's so good. 
Yeah, but no, but I mean, like here he is, like he's just he, he's freebasing coke, right there, just like in his own house, and like John C. Riley is just in the middle of the couch, just looking uncomfortable, like just in the you know everything makes his face when the firework goes off too, but just he's doing a fucking hick and crack pipe, and it reminds me of like almost in a way that that like Alfred Marie, Monita is probably playing like. Almost like Richard Pryor was coked out like in the mid '80s. You know what I mean? Like you can see Richard Pryor, like those the stories about him, like you know, doing coke. You know, absolutely. So, <laughs> Jesse's girl. Absolutely. Yeah. So, anyways, those are my three movies. Well, um, it's what it's. What's up? It's Ninety Nine Left Balloons, Jesse's Girl, and Sister Christian. Right? Those are the three songs yep. that score that whole sequence. Yep. So good. And then mustache. So too. good. Yeah, and the mustache too, and then. Mark Wahlberg going through, or Dirk Diggler going through the withdrawals of just being wanting another hit. And just rubbing his hair back and forth the whole entire time. Yeah. Oh, man. Realizing he's probably going to die right there. Yeah. That's such a good sequence. Yeah. Especially because, I mean, that's such a good sequence. Yeah, Thomas Jane, too, is just like, when the Corvette runs out of gas, too. Oh, my God. That, that whole part. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Anyways, going on and on about that movie. We could actually do a whole entire podcast of how Boogie Nights is probably one of the best. Movies of the ninety, well, best movie of the decade, probably. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe it depends, but anyway, yeah, those are my three movies. And in... Perry and I did the whole uh, whole segment about Magnolia because I'd never seen it. Oh, um, oh yeah. That's a, Chris. That's a movie you have to you have to see for probably seeing Tom Cruise. I think that's Tom Cruise's best movie. Would you agree, Perry? I think it's Tom. It's one of Tom Cruise's two best performances. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, I'll go three. I thought of a third. I'll give him three really good ones. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> yes. Wait, that's one. Which one was? Which is that one? Because there's there's, there's there's this line right here that it's um, you'll hear it back on the podcast. We like to celebrate Saint Suck My Big Fat Sausage. I just played the Saint celebrate the Saint by sucking my big fat sausage. <laughs> sausage. Yes. Yes. It's rhyming with August, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, 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 yeah. I, I think that movie. Um, I would say. What would you say his other two movies were, Perry, for his best three? You think? I think. Well, I think the Color of Money is another fantastic performance out of him. Uh, he's really good in that, and he's really. It's. It's easy to discount what he's doing in that movie because he's playing dumb, <laughs> and that's actually really hard to do. <laughs> it's it's hard to play dumb, re- truthfully. But there's not it's really hard skill, uh, and he's really good in that movie. And I will, uh, I, I'm I'm also really more than willing to give him Jerry Maguire. <laughs> he's very good in that. He's, he carries that entire movie, which is a ridiculous movie that shouldn't work and does, uh, largely on his remarkable smile. It's a it's a it's a really strong star performance, but no, it's it's not his best acting, but it's a great star performance. Yeah, I, I would have to say um, honestly, I'm trying to think of that one movie is with uh, is it Collateral with Jamie Fox? Oh yeah, another Michael Mann movie. Yeah, that, that he was really I thought he was really good in that movie too. Um, that that's one of my favorite performances with him. Tropic Thunder, even that short cameo was really good too, but. Uh, um, no, yeah, honestly, she's fantastic in Tropic Thunder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and the, the Mission Impossible movies, of course, he can hold his own on that. But uh, either way, um, also, if you want, if you really want to get some, uh, want to really get old Tom Cruise losing, it's also a classic. So, 
losing it. Yeah, is Yersin losing it, Chris? I don't think so. That's uh, that's uh, Chris Hansen. Yeah. Also, uh, uh, Jackie Earl Haley. Shelly Long. Yeah, and Jackie Earl Early or Jackie Earl or Earl Earl Haley. Yeah, Earl Haley's in that movie because that was one of the last movies he did for a long time before as an adult. But that was his last uh, for his teenage length. John Stockwell's in it too. If you're familiar with the movie, Christine is in that movie too as well. So, mm-hmm. but uh, interesting. Yeah. Either way. Um. But yeah, there's a, like like I said, there's a bunch of movies I can name off that I'm sure we can all name up. But I know my list is kind of Transformers is a good way, or I guess a different way to end things. But uh, but yeah. So um. But again, Perry, tell us more about your podcast, where people can find it, and when's the next episode coming out? It's called We're Watching Here. We're watching uh, here. And it's me and my buddy Chris Williams, who's a, a fellow excellent film critic, and uh. It's we our second episode drops this Friday, and it's actually it's great we got on Magnolia because it's about the films of 1999, which we can't believe is 20 years ago. Uh, that was an amazing film year. If you go back and look at the list of movies from that year, there are tons of modern classics on that list. Uh, it's a hell of a year, and uh, we go into uh, we each picked three that we wanted to talk about in uh, in greater detail, and that's that's uh, come up this Friday. Uh, we drop a new episode every two weeks. Coming up, we have episodes uh, where we take a look at the career of Robin Williams. We're going to do a career talking about, uh, an episode talking about uh, High Flying Bird, the new Steven Soderbergh film, which is on Netflix now. And, uh, and we'll probably have a quick, ep- a quick episode about the Oscars. Seems probable to happen sometime soon. Awesome. But you can find us anywhere. Uh, iTunes, Spotify, uh, I don't even know where else. Everywhere you get your your podcast, you can find we're watching here. All right, perfect. And uh, Perry, we're uh, open invite. We're going to be doing an episode of Over and Affair on the summer of 1989, which was probably one of the greatest runs of movies of all time and succession that comes out from May yes. to August. So we're uh, we're definitely going to have you on for that episode because it's something that uh, from you know, Chris, this is something that you know you you probably you probably remember too. It's just Batman '89. There was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, just this great run of movies. Was that Roger had. Rabbit 89? That was 88, Perry? Was that, eight, is that 88? I think that was a year before. I think it was 88. Yeah, but... Yeah, uh, 89, is, 89, is, 89 is almost as good as 99. Because you've got Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Do the Right Thing, Drugstore, Cowboy, The Fabulous Baker Boys, Roger and Me. 89 yeah. is a great year. Yeah, that's just... Yeah, there's that summer... Like, it was just the... Amazing run of movies that would come out. I'm just trying to. Th- there was towards the tail end of uh, almost every weekend. There was a like a uh, a block like a well, new I'm blockbuster. Looking. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it here. I see Field of Dreams, Last Crusade, License to Kill, Ghostbusters Two, Batman, Honey I Shrunk the Kids, Lethal Weapon Two. A lot of sequels. Yeah. yeah. Back to the Future Two later in the year. The Little Mermaid. Little Mermaid was that early? Huh. And oh, yeah. Do the right thing. Yeah. Also, Harry no award for Spike Lee. Oh yeah, Harry, Harry Mansalli. Uh, Indiana Jones: Last Crusade, I believe, came out that year too. Yeah. So. Oh, the number one, the number one grossing movie of 1999, though, The Phantom Menace. Ah. Yep. But after that, yeah, that was a. Uh, huh. Well, all right. Yeah. Artistically, 99 is hard to touch. Well, I, I don't know if you heard me. I was trying to talk over you, but yes, that was the year The Insider came up. Yeah, among uh, among many other very good movies. 
So. Magnolia, Toy Story 2, Being John Malkovich, Three Kings. It's endless. It's 99 is just an embarrassment of riches. Well, South so Park, if we get that... longer and uncut. I mean, come on. Was 2009 any good? Sorry? See if we're getting... I was wondering if 2009 was any good, so we, we could look forward to 2019. I have to admit, years. it's sometime after that that I stopped being able to remember years of movies. Yeah, no, so, so, <laughs> summer, well, summer 99 it's is... It's somewhere uh, in there. I mean, that's uh, Avatar, I mean, The Hangover, The Inglorious Bastards, Star Trek, Up in the Air, District 9, uh, Public uh, Enemies. Up would have been that year, too. Yeah, Sherlock, uh, Sherlock Holmes, The Blind Side. Hurt Blocker. The Informant, Zombieland. The Fantastic Mr. Fox, 500 Days of Summer, Watchmen. And 99 is actually not bad either. Or 2000, mm. sorry, 2009, I'm sorry, 2009. Um, a Serious Man, which I just I just watched that for the first time. Uh, God, that's a great movie. That is a great movie. <laughs> that's a great uh, Coen Brothers movie. Terminator Salvation, eh. G.I. Joe, Rise of Cobra, eh. Nah. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Twilight uh, Saga, one of the Twilight Sagas came out that year. So, yeah. Mm. So 2009 wasn't bad either. You know what's funny? Actually, ironically enough, Crazy Heart came out, which is a Jeff Bridges music movie, which is, you know, interesting. Now. Oh, and Men Who Stared at Goats. God, I saw that in the theater. That was <laughs> an interesting uh, interesting article that never should have been made into a movie. <laughs> I'm glad they tried. Yeah, it's an, it's an honest failure. Well, that's it, fine. I'm glad, I'm glad it got made. Well, here's a here's a million dollar question. What's the biggest failure? That or the caveman TV show they made off the Geico commercials? <laughs> oh. Both of those projects are full of incredibly talented people who tried their hardest. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you kill a There are people spirit. I love associated with both of those projects, so I'm not going to speak too much crap on them. But, you know, yeah, I, I'm... I'm really glad that all things considered that Nick Kroll didn't get stuck, didn't stuck doing the caveman sitcom for nine years. Yes, I'm happy about that. Yeah. Nick Kroll, oh my God, he was in. That, I forgot he was in that. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember. I remember it being uh, like interesting guys, and it, it was just like, uh, yeah, just uh, done anyway, <laughs> very quickly. Yeah, you know, you know, you know, everybody has to work. You know, it is what it is. So, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, you you can't uh, you know, and everything's gonna be a hit. So, wow. Uh, all right. So on on that note, uh, we're out of time. Thank you so much for listening to Tigers and D here on the Overtime Media Network, powered by Sports Radio Detroit. You can find us all over the place. Rate us, write us, review us. We appreciate the feedback we've been getting on our podcasts and all the wee tweets and questions and comments. Let us know as my wife comes in dancing. Um, just to yeah, like I said, just uh. <laughs> Yeah, leave your comments. Let us know what you think. We appreciate it. We'll be back next week, hopefully with a guest or two. As spring training is underway, welcome back baseball. Woo woo! That's uh, that's my attempt to be loud at time of recording here is eleven thirty-five in the evening. So we'll see you next week.